It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Uh, this is Maybe by uh, I'm Not Sure. If you ever want to know what kind of uh, music we're playing on the show, just uh, join the Facebook group at uh, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. Oh, it's by the Chantels. Okay. Um, so I don't know if you ever saw the movie, The, the Campaign. It's a very funny film. Not, it's, not a, it's not a brilliant film by any stretch. It's not a masterpiece by any stretch. It's amusing. You're looking for an amusing hundred minutes of uh, of comedy, particularly if you're interested in politics. It's got Will Ferrell in it. It's got Zach Galifianakis, and it's got some fun scenes. And Will Ferrell plays a politician. I haven't seen this film probably in about um, probably in about five years, maybe maybe a few more. And it is it's funny. He's a congressman from the South. I want to say one of the Carolinas, and he's at a lunch with his wife. And some campaign contributors. And they're talking about how he's going to raise money for his campaign and what his donors expect in return for their investment. Listen to this. Campaign Watch 2012. And now, Congressman Cam Brady on campaign finance reform. The guys are prepared to donate $500,000 to your PAC. Provided, of course, you pick up the phone anytime we call Oh, hold on. Hello, how about 750? <laughs> if you give us a million, hell, I'll let you sleep with my wife. <laughs> and for 1.5, I'll throw my cousin. I don't know if you want her cousin. <laughs> that might drive the price down. Oh, Mrs. Brady, are you playing footsie with me under the table? Nope, that's me. <laughs> He's a switch hitter. <laughs> no, I did once. I did once in college. Yes, which we've never talked about. This important message has been brought to you by the campaign. Goes without saying, this lunch never happened. <laughs> now, the reason that's so funny is because there are so many different aspects of it that are true. I can't tell you how often I have seen big campaign contributors or big bundlers be able to drive not only an individual politician's way of life, but the entire issue agenda on anything. On anything. You know, um, John Katsimatidis, who owns WABC, who's a great guy, big campaign contributor, gives to Democrats, gives to Republicans. Years ago, when he first started doing his radio show, this is eight years ago, he would be able, I never saw anything like this. He would have any politician that he wanted on the show. Hillary Clinton, on. George Pataki, on. Andrew Cuomo, on. And I said, John, I have never produced a radio show where a host can get any politician that they want at any time. This is unprecedented for me. And he said, that's because I have checks appeal. And John understood the value of campaign contributions. You know who else understood it? 
Donald Trump when he made contributions to people like Chuck Schumer and Kirsten Gillibrand. Um, You know, uh, there was a reason that Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton were at Donald Trump's wedding. And I'm sure it had something to do with the money that Donald Trump raised and gave to the Clintons over the years. Well, that's one of the many reasons that I am totally fascinated by the work that Dr. Dan McMillan is doing. He's a uh, political expert. He's a former professor and prosecuting attorney. He's an author. He's, uh, he's written a book called How Could This Happen? Explaining the Holocaust. And he's part of a group now called the Save Democracy in America PAC and kind enough to visit us in studio in uh, the middle of the uh, middle of the night or the middle of the morning, depending on your perspective. Dan, it's great to see you. It's great to see you, Frank. Thank you so much for that kind introduction. Well, well thanks for coming in. So law degree and a Ph.D., uh, do they immediately put your mom on the parenting route, Mount Rushmore when you get your second postgraduate degree like that? I mean, that's pretty impressive. You know, I never thought of it that way, and I don't think my mom did either. It's probably <laughs> why I'm so messed up in the head, but, you know, <laughs> no, that's, that's not fair. I think my mom was pretty pleased, yeah. Uh, now, uh, before we talk about uh, campaign finance, because I was reading a little bit about how you came to advocate for being sort of a reformer on campaign finance issue issues, on your uh, website, you said that you began researching and writing about big money in politics after you finished your book on the causes of the Holocaust about nine years ago. What uh, you, the name of your book is? How could this happen? Explaining the Holocaust. How does something like the Holocaust happen? Reader's Digest version. We'll encourage everyone to read the book. But how does it happen? I think you know it's a very complex story, and at the same time, it's simple. The most important reason those people did this—that these Germans killed not only the Jews but so many other people in Europe—is they saw no reason not to. It was because a bunch of things came together in time: scientific racism. Uh, the cheapening of human life in World War I and in World War II, some other factors that the ruling class of an entire society decided that individual human life had no value whatsoever. It's the only time in history that's happened. And if we could get 20 of these guys around a table and ask them, why in heaven's name are you doing something so cruel, dollars to donuts, they'd, say, they'd shrug their shoulders and say, why not? Just people. And that's the most important thing I want anyone to know about the Holocaust. So I could understand when you're in the throes of researching the Holocaust, you wanting to delve into uh, sociology or issues like uh, anti-Semitism or uh, political history or military history or any of a number of things. Why did you choose to pivot towards researching the role of big money in politics? You know, I, I first started following politics the year I turned 20 in 1980 when Ronald Reagan was first elected. And already in the early 80s, I felt like something was wrong, like it wasn't adding up with what I'd learned, heard about civics. Everyone around me was saying and I was feeling, you know, I can still go to the polls and vote, but I don't have a lot to vote for. I'm mm. voting for the lesser of two evils. And in most elections since then, not all, um, I feel like most Americans have been saying that and have been saying it more and more and more. But no one – could put their finger on why this was happening. Starting in the early 1890s, I began to read some stuff, some some good political journalism. I don't know if you know Bill Greider. Uh, he was at The Nation. I don't, I don't know that I do. I'm surprised no, that I don't, but I don't know that I do. He's no longer with us. He wrote a book called Who Will Tell the People? The Betrayal of American Democracy, 1992. It's kind of an alternative civics book, a fantastic book. And it was the beginning of my education, and I, that's when I began to see, wait a minute, 
these election campaigns are hyper expensive. And exactly that wonderful clip from the movie. And by the way, I love your boss, you know, you, the station's owner talking about checks appeal. That is so great. And that, that, you know, if you have to raise all this money, you owe favors to these people and this distorts how we make policy. And it more and more leaves the rest of us who can't write checks for half a million out in the cold. Um, but then, and so, you know, really after the Citizens United decision in 2010, which kind of opened the floodgates wider to the big money, I began to sort of really work on this researching and writing a book about the subject. Uh, so before we discuss how big money sort of uh, perverts politics and issues and governing, um, explain to us what sort of a game changer that was. That Citizens United decision in 2010 um, the justices on the Supreme Court at the time said something along the lines of, well, this is free speech. People can spend as much money uh, promoting whatever cause, whatever candidate that they that they want, and a corporation spending political money, it's the same as if a person wants to spend unlimited right. amounts of money. What, what did that do? Uh, before we, you know, putting aside the legal reasoning, what did that do to politics? Well, it... it it took a situation that was already terrible and turned it into a flat-out catastrophe. But what you what you said earlier, you put your finger on it, that money is speech. That actually goes back to a decision in 1976, and that's why, that's why already in the 80s we're we're, no, we're seeing something's not wrong in our politics. What happened was, up until that court decision in 76, it's called Buckley v. Vallejo. There's no reason why anyone would have heard about it. Like Although the Buckley was our senator, right? Jim Buckley. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You've got a good memory. So, um, but basically, up till that point, freedom of speech in this country meant what that sounds like, freedom to say what you think. It didn't include money you might spend to purchase an audience for your speech or to drown out someone else's speech in political ad campaigns. But in that decision, seven justices, including Thurgood Marshall, got the bright idea that now that money is itself free speech. It's protected by the First Amendment, which then, if you want to pass a law that regulates it, you're infringing on a fundamental right, and that law has to pass a very high bar. And already then, at that point, our attempts to regulate money in politics were hobbled, were really limited. And then what, what the Roberts Court did in Citizens United and about a dozen other decisions uh, that were also very destructive is just take that silly idea, money equals speech, to the most absurd conclusion. And what Citizens United did is it, it, it together with Speech Now, a, a federal appeals court case, made possible the rise of the super PAC, which is basically allows individuals, corporations, anyone, to give an unlimited amount of money. I mean, you can put $10 billion in a super PAC, if you like, and it allows that PAC to spend an unlimited amount helping a candidate they like or hurting a candidate they don't like, as long as they don't coordinate too tightly with the campaign that they're supporting. And in fact, the coordination rules are so loose. Um, I mean, you have often like the political director for some candidate ends up running the super PAC. Mm-hmm. So, but so the situation, I mean, in, in a way, I would say that we had already lost government by the people in a lot of ways already by the early 1990s. That's why in the 92 election, you have so much support going to Ross Perot, who I don't think was playing with a full deck, frankly. But Amer- the American people, they knew that they were being ignored. They knew that they were getting the shred into the stick economically. They didn't know why. And that's why, oh, here's a possible alternative. Let's vote for this guy. Uh, 
So obviously, I think you could probably tell that I'm pretty sympathetic to where you are in terms of the role mm-hmm. big mm-hmm. money has played mm-hmm. in perverting politics. Uh, by the way, we're talking with Dan McMillan. You can check out his website, drdanmcmillan.com. That's drdanmcmillan.com. But uh, just uh, to play devil's advocate, there's going to be a lot of people that agree with the justices in both the Buckley decision and the Citizens United decision say, look, uh, campaign spending, political spending is free speech. If I want to if I believe passionately in an issue, whether it's overturning Obamacare or legalizing drugs, why shouldn't I be free to spend every dollar that I have advocating for or against Th- that position why why is it that speech well it's not so much that that isn't speech but just as a practical matter because candidates have such a desperate need for money because you can't even get a campaign even remotely off the ground without raising a ton what that means is that all kinds of good ideas that people might have for fixing the many problems we've got like healthcare as being a really good example are off the table. Mm. Don't even come into the conversation. All kinds of good people who'd be great candidates don't even consider running because they don't want to raise this money. Mm. All kinds of important questions don't get asked. The thing about money in politics that one of the things I've noticed, everyone knows it's a problem, and, you know, and yet everyone else who's writing about politics, talking about it on TV, I think they underrate the importance of money by about a factor of 10. And the reason is the bulk of the damage it does to us is invisible. It consists of all these questions that don't get asked. And more and more, now it's gotten to a point. I mean, the cost of the federal elections doubled between 2016 and 2020. Um, so many things are off the table that our politicians in D.C., neither party's offering like a real plan for the future. And mm. yet we've been kicking the can down the road on our problems for decades and so many problems don't get talked about because fixing them would require alienating some donor, goring their financial ox, that now all the parties have left to offer us is keeping their base in line by encouraging us to fear and hate the other side. If people have questions, by the way, for Dr. McMillan, they can give us a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. In just a moment, uh, we're going to get to... Uh, Dan's solutions to solution or solutions to how to fix this system. But Dan, one of the things that I've heard from proponents of keeping the system essentially the way it is, and they're fewer and fewer, by the way, across the political spectrum. One of the things that I've heard is it really doesn't distort political views or the process of governing because there's money everywhere, right? If I am um, a very, very pro-gun control, for instance, I can reach out to the groups that are super for pro-gun control, but if I'm very um, pro-gun rights, then I can go to NRA and pro-Second Amendment groups and find a special interest to fund whatever issue I already believe in. Why is that a flawed premise, a premise or a flawed it's way of so thinking? It's so great that you put that, and thank you for giving me the chance to answer it. The, 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 problem, the problem is, is, yes, you can get money for lots of different positions, but the only positions you can get money for are positions that are interesting to rich people. Mm. And and it's also kind of like on, on you know, a lot of political television where all the people you see are multimillionaires, they work for these large conglomerates, you know. I mean, I think that, again, the, the big thing is that anything that is not going to be appealing to large corporations, pressure groups, uh, people with a lot of money is just is off the table. 
and is out of the conversation, is out of sight, out of mind. And that's really why the, the party is increasingly, and that's why the American people are so angry. Uh, and, and the American people have a right to be angry. They should be angry. Um, one of the things that I think in a way is positive that we've seen since 2016 is you see Americans on both sides of the aisle standing up and saying, we want change, no more. Republicans did that when they supported Donald Trump. Democrats did that when they supported Bernie Sanders. Now, we're nonpartisan. I'm not endorsing either politician. But I think that the support, the success of those you know, candidates who ran against the system, yet Trump said we need to drain the swamp, Sanders said we need a revolution, same difference. You have basically a majority of Americans, when you take all these voters together, they know that something's wrong. They know they want fundamental change. They know they want their country back. They just don't know how to get it. One of the things that I thought uh, was interesting about Sanders and Trump's candidacies, respectively, in 2016, is that uh, they supported some of the same issues, and those were issues that um, were anathema to the status quo and big campaign donations. I'm thinking of uh, ending these never-ending wars in the Middle East, which yeah. defense contractors, which spend a lot of money on mm-hmm. campaigns, they want to see continue. And um, ending these reckless free trade deals, which multinational corporations, which make a lot of campaign contributions, they want to see continue. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, by the way, 800-848-9222, if you have a question or, or a comment for Dr. McMillan. One of the things that um, – so what are some of the issues as you see it that have been placed off the table because of the manner in which we fund campaigns and fund elections today? Well, I think that, that any approach to – we've got this ridiculous health care system. We, we Amer- Americans spend twice as much on health care per American, per person, as – uh, you know, France, England, Canada, a whole bunch of other countries. Yet we get lousier outcomes. We get a lower life expectancy than all those countries. One American in 10 doesn't have insurance, even if you have insurance, because the insurance companies are so good at finding excuses to deny coverage. Half a million American families are driven into bankruptcy every year by medical expenses. Whereas I tell my German friends this, and they look at me like I've got three heads. Mm-hmm. I say, you're going to be kidding, Dan. So I don't have a plan for that. But But here's this. First of all, we don't regulate drug prices the way every other civilized country does. So Americans pay more than twice as much for prescription medications. A lot of Americans go bankrupt paying for cancer medicine they need. Why is that? Well, it's because big pharma you know, has more than half of Congress in its pocket. Insurance companies who are micromanaging doctors, driving good people out of the medical profession, just causing stress to everyone, um, we can't regulate them. They're a powerful lobby. Um, the malpractice bar. Um, you, of course, you need a system for weeding out bad doctors, compensating people who have been hurt by medical errors, but doing it through the courts is the most expensive mm-hmm. way to do it. Mm-hmm. But no one even talks about the idea of maybe reforming that piece of the system because the, the trial lawyers bar, year in and year out, is a major donor to the Democratic Party. Um, very, very interesting. Now, one of the things that's been frustrating is that even as people across the political aisle recognize the problem, it seems like very often the solutions to these problems are, are maybe even worse than the initial disease in, um, New York city, for instance, uh, I don't know how closely you follow the ins and outs of New York city elections. But we have a campaign finance system which has got to be one of the worst in the world, right? This matching fund system mm-hmm. where the city taxpayers will 
uh, give a candidate $800 if a candidate gets a $100 contribution, it's essentially become a way for politicians, consultants, and lawyers to game the system. I mean, the joke in New York City politics is everyone calls this a political consultant welfare program. Mm. Um, And it's really done very little to make the elections more competitive. It's done a lot to make uh, accountants and campaign managers and compliance people and lawyers wealthy. What is your solution? Well, then you may not like my solution because in a way my solution is the matching system on steroids, only it's a lot more fair. My solution has is, is been called democracy dollars by a number of people. It was in, cooked up by a couple of smart guys who teach at Yale Law School. And the idea is this. Um, look, these candidates are going to get this money from somewhere. The courts, because they think money is speech, they're not going to let us regulate the cost of campaigns. We can't make the campaigns less expensive. So the reality is whoever pays the piper calls the tune. Right now the donors pay the piper. They call the tune. We're out in the cold. The only way we're going to take our country back is if we pay the piper. But this matching fund system is is not fair because the only people who get to have clout are the, that small minority of Americans who could afford to make a country, you know, even a hundred dollar contribution. How many people living in this city really have oh, enough spare cash right. lying around? So the democracy dollars concept is that for every federal election, the federal government would give every registered voter. An online account of campaign cash, $100 per voter in a presidential year, $50 in, a mid, in the midterms, which are cheaper. Can't take the money out and spend it, but you go online with a pin. You assign it to the party and the candidates that you want to support. And with 200 million registered voters, you fund it at that level. Any good candidate, as opposed to a joke candidate, who has something to say, something to offer us, will be able to raise more than enough money from us to fund the kind of hyper-expensive campaign you need to be serious. And when they get to Washington, the politicians uh, can, you know, will continue to do what they're doing now, effectively taking care of their donors. But if we're the donors, then we can kind of have government by the people again. That's the concept. Now, Seattle does something very similar to this. They call it democracy vouchers. I, I'm, right. I'm assuming you're familiar with yes, the Seattle plan. Yeah. Is that um, is that uh, similar to the plan you're proposing? It's it's in some ways identical, but they, in my view, they botched the implementation. Uh, that is to say, the way they do it is they they literally mailed uh, for each election four twenty five dollar paper vouchers to every resident of Seattle, and most of those vouchers went in the trash because people thought it was junk mail, and mm. then other people it was just administratively, it wasn't easy for voters to use them, and only like 3% of Seattle residents ever used their vouchers. Really? Even at that level, nonetheless, the system did have a positive impact. But a website, I think, is so much better. Also, paper vouchers are now, they're now dead on arrival politically because so many Americans are afraid that there's fraudulent voting. And so those Americans, you say, wait, paper vouchers, that's so easy to counterfeit, you know? So I think the only way to really make this work that that all Americans can accept and have trust in is, you know, you have, you know, rigorous identification requirements to get registered to vote. Plus also, however, the government's got to make it easier to register and you should not have to pay anything to get whatever ID you need to register. So you need, you need, we need a new election law that makes it easier for every American who's eligible to register uh, while preventing any kind of fraud. I'm not saying that there was fraud, but a lot of Americans fear there was. And then if it's on the website, 
then you don't have to pick up this voucher that you left on your kitchen counter. You can go on the website anytime. And also, if you don't check a box telling the candidates in your area to not email you, then candidates are going to keep sending emails to every voter who hasn't yet used their democracy dollars. I see you haven't used your democracy dollars. Please support me. And I think if you that mechanism should ensure that the great bulk of the money does get spent. Well, no, I think it's really interesting. And um, New York considered adopting a similar proposal in 2019, and I strongly encouraged the New York City Charter Revision Commission to adopt this as an alternative to the disastrous eight-to-one matching fund system we have now. And it came very close to making the ballot, but they didn't put it on the ballot. Um, so. Does any candidate, would this be a mandatory program for candidates? If a candidate said, I either want to self-fund or, or, or abandon this program or and ask my wealthy contributors for money, would they have the option to do that under your proposal? Yes, the, the courts will not allow us to forbid that. But I think what you can do is you can say, if you want to take democracy dollars, no more than, say, 10% of your total campaign you know, take can be private money. I mean, you wouldn't want a system where people could only fund with democracy dollars because if you did that, incumbents would have a crushing advantage, sure. right? Because they already are, can have their name before the public. So, and also the courts won't allow us to get rid of the private money. And, you know, there are people who've said to me, well, this is a great idea, but if we can't stop, you know, Big Oil and Big Pharma from throwing money at politicians, won't they swamp the system? And that's a very reasonable objection, but I think that, Basically, the only way that we make this happen is really when we make this so popular among Republicans and Democrats, voters across the board, that that politicians really have to give it to us because the will for this is not going to come from Congress. They're too dependent on their donors. They can't lead on this issue. We've got to lead. Is there anybody in Congress that is proposing this as legislation? There have been a couple of democracy dollars bills that have come from progressive Democrats, from Ro Khanna and Pramila Jayapal. But the House leadership saw to it that, for example, the Kana bill was introduced in late 2018 at the end of the lame duck Republican curled Congress, knowing that three weeks later a Democratic majority is going to be sworn in sure. and nothing more is heard of the Kana bill. So, I mean, I think that there I think that there are plenty of people in both parties in politics who would love nothing more than to get off the Republic, the fundraising treadmill. But as a politician, you can't go out on the campaign trail and tell the voters big money is evil and the next day call up your evil donors and sure. ask for more of their evil money. Uh, yeah, I, uh, we, you're going to have to come back because I have a lot of questions about this and I, I suspect listeners do too. But if people want to – I wanted to have you on to kind of introduce the concept to people. If people want to learn more about this and uh, kind of get into the weeds a bit more, what's the best way for them to do that? Is, is our website – and uh, the URL is savedemocracyinamerica.org, savedemocracyinamerica.org. Although if you Google Save Democracy or Democracy Dollars and my last name, McMillan, that will also get you there. Um, we, we haven't really launched on social media yet, so we don't always, always come up at a Google search. But again, savedemocracyinamerica.org. Some of my other interviews are, are there as well as some videos. A whole list of ideas how you can help, some FAQs. You can learn a lot. Uh, uh, last question here, and then uh, we're way late. I do have to run. 
Why not simply advocate for full public financing uh, uh, rather than this voucher system? Why not say anybody that wants to run for federal office, you get $100,000 or whatever amount, and uh, all the candidates get the same amount of money funded by the tax dollars? Because the Supreme Court, building on that precedent in Buckley in 76, is going to say – no, you're you're stealing. You're you're, right. you're 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 robbing these corporations of their free speech rights. Uh, Dan McMillan, thank you very much. Let's do this again soon. I'd love that. Thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. If you want to comment, that's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight. midnight. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com. 